welcome to the 20-minute hit, the fast-paced all-sport podcast that's trying to keep up with Robert Lewandowski's goal-scoring record. We take, as always, the top five topics from the week, break them down into three-minute chunks, and when the buzzer goes, we're on to the next one. It's as quick as that. I'm Ollie Wilson, sports commentator and broadcaster, and joining me, as always, on the show is my wonderful co-host, esteemed sports journalist, Mr. Paul McDonald. Paul, how are you doing today, mate? Not bad. Aussies destroying England at Wembley. Always nice to see. Wem- not Wembley, Twickenham, rather. Oh, Why do you have to go straight away for the vicious into the gut of English rugby fans? Straight off the bat, we're only 30 seconds in and you're already getting the Scotland-England rivalry nice and warmed up for the next 20 minutes or so. I'm delighted to say uh, that joining us on the show as well is, of course, back for a second appearance after his debut last week was so promising. Raider Mayer, the uh, features editor for Gold.com, joining us on the line. Raider, how are you doing, my man? Are you going to get into this kind of Scotland-England rivalry as well today as we talk rugby or are we, we going to be bouncing around anywhere else no you, you, you're avoiding <laughs> uh, however, however however that is the first time i've been described as promising since i had hair so thanks <laughs> it's made right. an old man very happy it's all right we we can smell our own us uh, us follically challenged uh, men i believe but uh Raider, <laughs> pleasure to be joined by you once again on the show let's dive straight into our first topic of today and we will go to twickenham to talk about that 33 to 13 loss to australia that england suffered the host nation out of the rugby world cup gentlemen uh, i think i know what paul's answer is going to be on this are we sad to see England out of the tournament, specifically from the point of the host being knocked out so early, Raider? Well, you know, if rugby was run by an autocratic, corrupt organisation like FIFA, then the draw would have been rigged to ensure that England reached the semi-finals. So um, <laughs> from a moral perspective, it's good that England have been allowed to go out. Um, from a rugby <laughs> perspective, uh, they need a full restructure. I think what Stuart Lancaster did really well in the post-Johnson era was instill a bit of discipline and professional pride and organisation. But I don't think he has the motivational chops or the tactical acumen really to take England to finals, which is where they should really be appearing given their status as a rugby nation. I mean, it, it is quite easy to slag off Stuart Lancaster when his hands are tied by what I still maintain is a ludicrous policy not to pick players who are based abroad, which taken in conjunction with the domestic salary cap is probably the most uncompetitive regulation you, in You sound like a man raider that never actually believed that England were going to do uh, anything in this World Cup. But even before the tournament started, when plenty of other people thought, you know, being the home host nation, we'd have a fantastic chance of going on and perhaps winning the World Cup again. Um, there was no chance of that. Um, we've not been consistently convincing for... Uh, we've not been consistently convincing really since Clive Woodward, um, but we've not really had that edge for some time. In, in, in the pack and the breakdowns were weak and that's where England were always strong. I'm saying we, sorry, lay my cards <laughs> on the table. Um, no, I've never been convinced by them. I've never been convinced by them under Lancaster. I think he steadied a sinking ship. I thought they were disastrous under Johnson. But, um, but the I don't t- think Johnson knows how to manage people and I don't, I don't think he had um, a really good understanding of how to control the sort of new style rugby player the one that never played in the era of amateur rugby it was only 12 Um, months ago though uh and paul that we were talking about this uh, young promising england squad that perhaps could grow over 12 months 18 months or so and really do something special at this world cup is it just a case of not living up to expectation or or do you think we overhyped the youngsters too early paul as i referred to last week um, rob andrew before the tournament began was already laying his cards on the table saying this team would be more suited to 2019 rather than 2015. And the expectations were purely being raised because the tournament was being held in England. And I think that's been borne out. 
I completely concur with Redder's point about not not picking overseas players. It's absolutely crazy. And Armitage, Abadenda, they've been brilliant this year, and they've not they don't get a look at. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. <laughs> and just as, as a side issue, one Australia were absolutely fantastic and made England look pretty amateurish, particularly in the second half. And two, does the tournament need England? No, absolutely, it does not need England because there've been record crowds turning up to watch some of the tier two nations in some of the less glamorous venues. And England's England's uh, contribution or not, the tournament's been a massive success from a for, for an overall spectator perspective. So I think it, uh, the, the, the tournament itself will continue to go on strength to strength. Well, let's hope that the uh, the tournament does continue. It will continue, though, without England. No chance of making a quarterfinal spot now as the Australians and the Welsh will be going through from Pool A. Let's move on to... Uh, we're talking about... Uh, beastly tough sports if you will that's such a bad way to put it but let's move across to the Sunday of last weekend and talk about the gridiron action that was happening at Wembley the NFL making its annual trip across the pond as the Miami Dolphins and the New York Jets met at London Wembley just a day after England crashed out at Twickenham gentlemen what are your thoughts on the NFL it's it's trip across the across the pond to uh, to the UK every year and the growth of the sport in general is this actually something that's feasible that's possible you think of having perhaps a franchise and and the growth of the game in general that we've seen from the international series that have been played out Paul if you look at it from the perspective of football and Scudamore's long-winded attempt to convince us of a 30 innings game in the Premier League I think the rich history and tradition of football particularly among the media and, and the UK put paid to that. When it comes to NFL and the US and cash though, just cold hard cash, I don't think that anything is off the, off the table. And the way that the, the matches in, in England have been received with record crowds and indeed, I think there was 90,000 at Wembley this weekend, they could have probably sold another half that again in terms of, of tickets. So there's a real appetite for the game in the, in the UK at the moment. I think the, the people running the game are just looking at it and thinking this makes perfect financial sense to give us um, our base in Europe to allow NFL to expand and become a really truly global game. Well, you talk about there's 83,000, I think it was at Wembley this weekend, uh, around about 84 to 83,000 uh, always uh, at Wembley for these games. And it's a great atmosphere and great for the NFL fans. Um, for the NFL, it seems that they obviously want to increase their movement across into Europe and expand the global game. But do you think it will ever be taken seriously in Europe, particularly if a franchise comes to, it comes to Europe as well, Raider? Uh, well, it's always been taken seriously in Europe to an extent. It's just they've not really had the product. I mean, the attempts to build an NFL-type league in Europe fell on the basis of a lack of quality and genuine talent. What you do here is you're expanding the NFL into Europe, so you have least firm guarantees of um, draft picks and quality players. I think there's two potential issues to it that will be brought up in the United States, because I don't think tradition is relevant to American sports in the same way that it is in the UK. One is travel times and I think you can make the argument that London is a prime spot for an offshore NFL team because flying from say New York to London only takes a couple of hours longer than flying to LA from New York. Um, the second issue which I think is probably going to be the biggest one is actually getting play enough players over who are able to adapt to living outside of their state or their hometown or their general. Because I mean, a bulk of NFL squads are relatively local players. Obviously, the big stars are, are brought in from around. But you get a lot of local players and a lot of people who maybe wouldn't take too kindly to living in, say, London or yeah, in Europe I, I generally. Think, I think so it's about finding the right type of player, personality and mindset, who can live abroad and can function and will be able to play 
and train at peak. I think any European franchise that comes across, though, they're going to have a base, a main base in the US. And what will happen is they'll only come across for the season, uh, the the few weeks or so that they're in the UK anyway. I don't think it'd be a true NFL base in London, uh, perhaps if they do end up with this franchise. The other thing I think as well is... So you think the franchise would be US-based and they just come out for the games? Well, maybe not just come out for the games, but spend the majority of the season here. But actually, when the season's only 16 weeks and a poor NFL side in London might not make the playoffs in the first few years their home base and training grounds and pre-season will all still be done i reckon stateside especially to help a young rookie coming out of college who's going to want to perhaps you know still be close to his family and still uh, and not be intimidated by going across uh, the pond but the expansion of the nfl continuing into europe uh, increased games and of course that uh, link with tottenham as well coming up talking of tottenham we'll get into uh, premier league football discussion and the main talking point of this weekend also took place on sunday brendan rogers sacked by Liverpool as manager. We're all now just waiting for Jurgen Klopp to come in. Gentlemen, is Rogers hard done by for being sacked at this point in the season, at this time, and is it anything to do with the players more than Brendan Rogers? Paul, I'll let you kick this one off. Um, I, I find it staggering that some people have suggested this week that Rogers has been hard done by or or that he, has, he should be treated in a different way or in a fairer way. He In, in modern... Um, management, he's been given significantly longer chunk of time than most other people will get. If you look at a guy like Steve McLaren, I would imagine that if Newcastle feel to beat Norwich in their next Premier League game, McLaren might well be leaving Newcastle. And that's after eight or nine games of the season. Rodgers had three, three and a half, four years at Liverpool, roughly, to try and build teams and build again and have £300 million to spend uh, on identifying talent and bringing them in and, and setting them up in the way that he saw fit. Talent that and he doesn't get necessarily to pick, though, with the, the transfer policy that we, we've all heard about at Liverpool. Yeah, but it's not as if he didn't have any talented players to work with. Mm. Just because just because Rodgers saw fit that he didn't want, want to work with Balotelli. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that Balotelli would be an answer to Liverpool's problems. Um, I don't think Balotelli is, is the player or the superstar that people make out. But as soon as, I, as, soon as he was brought into the club, Rodgers had made his mind up that Balotelli wasn't the answer to his concerns. And if you look beyond even the striking talent that he had, the Suarez, the Sturridge, the Sterlings, how many times has he chopped up that defence and bought new players? And every single time, he's failed to get it right in any formation, with any lineup. Uh, every every single time you watch Liverpool, they look, look vulnerable defensively. So they've and, that, and, that's, and that's down to the organisation of the coach on the training field, day in, day out, irrespective of transfer policy. But, you, but you look, they've, they've been forced to sign, uh, sell their only world-class player. At the moment this season, they're still only three points off the, off the top four. They're unbeaten in six at this point in time. And they only had a draw against Everton on the weekend. So to sack him at this point in time, when actually it's not been the worst start to the season at all for Liverpool, seems a little bizarre, doesn't it? Unless they were worried about Chelsea perhaps nicking Klopp before they can, or, or they already got yeah. a manager lined up. Well, that, that, that actually is the main point I was going to make. Um, one thing that in football we tend to... Um, approach hiring and firing of coaches with a level of kind of knee-jerk reactionary kind of <laughs> we sort of see oh team's doing badly fire the coach replace him team's doing well or not doing too badly why have they replaced the coach That's in any business the smart thing to do is to find a better replacement than the existing manager and I think what's happened here is they've been made aware that Klopp is available and he's available now and Rodgers isn't really their long-term solution and they see Klopp as being able to take Liverpool to the next stage and I think that's why they've done it now and why they've gone why they're so aggressively going for Klopp I think the problem with Rodgers which is a secondary issue is that 
we're all looking at him as having had that incredible season where Liverpool came second, when actually they 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 were in a position where they had one of the best players in the world at absolute peak form, and the rest of the Premier League big guns were all in transitional phases or weren't really hitting top form or had problems of their own. So that was Liverpool's chance under Rodgers. And if you look at everything else around that, they're a top eight team at best. Look, uh, managers get blamed when it goes wrong. Players get the glory when it goes right. It just seems a little bit hard justice in my eyes. Let's stay with football and let's go across to Germany, uh, to the Vaterland, if you will, uh, and talk about the dominance of Bayern Munich. 5-1 thumping of their nearest rivals, Borussia Dortmund, on the weekend. Thomas Müller with two. Robert Lewandowski continues his incredible scoring form uh, at the moment. Nine goals in the last three games for him. And Mario Goetze scoring against his old club, as well as Lewandowski doing. Who can stop Bayern Munich ever in the Bundesliga right now? Or is the whole league weighted uh, to give Bayern a bit of an easy run at the moment and only now uh, be competing uh, or have people being able to compete with them uh, in Europe? Gentlemen, can anybody stop Bayern? I think um, I think Bayern, I think Germ the German league's problem is one of its strengths, ironically. It's that it's almost too sustainable. So you have this situation where clubs are only allowed to be owned by Germans in terms of majority ownership. So you don't get the sugar daddy thing. Um, and you also have a situation where the only German club that's a full global brand with the ability to, for example, set up an office in the United States, which is what Bayern have done. Um, is Bayern Munich because they have that history and that sort of weight of general support behind them. What Germany would need to make it more competitive in the long term, in an, ironically, is to allow billionaire sugar daddies to, from abroad to come in and buy clubs and spend. Because otherwise you get a situation where it's impossible for a team to sustainably challenge Bayern because eventually they get broken up. Ready there, giving us the background sounds of New York while he, uh, while he gives us his thoughts on, on Bayern Munich. But why, what's stopping Paul uh, sides like Borussia Dortmund, for instance, who had that great run under Klopp, uh, being able to compete on, on, on long-term, building that success and then maintaining it just as Bayern Munich have done over, over the years? Because trying to create a group of players that come together like that is so difficult to manage and then recreate that if, if teams could do it on a regular basis, they would. I'm thinking back, I think the best example when you mentioned Dortmund is the Sevilla team of roughly 06 to 08 that had Keita, Canute, Danny Alves, Sergio Ramos, these guys. That team was, was very unique and they caught lightning in a bottle with a lot of those players. Likewise, what, what Dortmund did with some of the guys that they brought through, Lewandowski became a world-class striker at Dortmund. Marco Royce became one of the most sought-after wingers there. Goetze, um, a World Cup winner. They were they were created in, in a in a very unique time period and in, in a situation where, where players come together just at random. Kind of what what you might say that harmed at Rodgers at Liverpool with Suarez, Sturridge, and, and Sterling. They came together in a perfect storm, and it's so difficult to recreate that on a on a consistent basis when you are when you're shopping at the lower end or mid end of the market, unlike Bayern. That that, that how often can teams really really replicate that? That was almost dangerously close to sounding like a sympathetic word to Brendan Rodgers there, Paul. Uh, but let's uh, let's get back to the German football. Okay, so so if German teams can't compete with Bayern in the long term, does that make it a positive or negative for German football going forward as well? Everybody talks about the competitive nature of the Premier League. If if Bayern uh, do continue to dominate the Bundesliga, the Bundesliga doesn't have that, and does it become a harder global brand for the Bundesliga to almost sell to other countries then as a source of entertainment? Well, the Bayern Munich are twenty to one on to win the Bundesliga at this point. And I would give you odds of a 1,000 to 1 on, to be perfectly honest. No one is going to stop them. And that's with a Dortmund team that have actually had a pretty good start until they've went off the rails in the last few weeks. So 
the answer is if you are a casual football viewer in the States or in other parts of Europe or even in Asia and you have the opportunity of watching a Premier League where granted the standard of the, the teams that are competing for the title isn't great this season but it's hugely competitive versus a league where Bayern are going to probably rack up a record points total and win it by February. If you're a casual viewer, which one of those are you going to opt for? Mm. It's probably going to be the Premier League every single time. Uh, so in that case, very quick answer, uh, just coming from this. Uh, can Bayern be stopped in Europe as well and will a lack of competition hinder them? I think this is the year that Bayern will win the Champions League as well. I think, I think Lewandowski is the best striker in the world at the moment and Guardiola knows how to get the best out of him now. Fair enough. I agree, I agree with Paul. That they they are. I mean, Lewandowski's been unstoppable recently, so you can't argue with uh, argue with that. I'm just wondering if, like PSG, a lack of competition will hinder them uh, in Europe at all. But obviously, not according to uh, to you two gentlemen. Uh, let's yeah, I think that, I think the level of like week in week out competition is probably just about strong enough for Bayern. All right, we will we will see as we go through. Uh, final topic of the day, gentlemen. Uh, Golden Horn winning the Prix de Lac de Triomphe on the weekend, defeating the favoured French mare Trivet in the world's richest turf race. An incredible race, uh, the horse Golden Horn ridden by Frankie de Tori, one of the most charismatic jockeys in the world as well. Gentlemen, where does Golden Horn's achievement this weekend and this year rank up in the world of horse racing? Uh, and Paul, I know you want to talk about Frankie de Tori as well uh, as an incredible jockey, uh, and especially after what he did this weekend on that horse. Yeah, um, I think Golden Horn's victory pushes it close to the top five flat horses we've ever seen. And that, that, is, a, that is a group with some serious competition in it, of course. But if, if you look at the odds going into this, Treve had been absolutely sensational in its previous race, galloped home at an incredible pace and just thoroughly looked unstoppable. Ran at 5-4 to favourite, where, where Golden Horn was 7-1. to one. No one really expected uh, Frankie to pull this one out of the bag. But his race management um, from start to finish, from a wide draw where he, where, he, where he decided to keep Golden Horn closer to the centre of the track rather than bring him into the pack and then slowly ease him across onto the rail for the final few furlongs was, was masterful. It was, a, it was a proper jockey's performance. And I think if you were in a position where you owned a horse and you needed your horse to get a result for you, I can't think of anybody else I would rather have in that position than Frankie de Tore. His His rags-to-riches-to-rags-to-riches story, as it were, is, is truly astonishing. And he may not be everyone's cup of tea from a personality perspective, but from pure... Um, ability as a jockey to get a horse over the line and, and manage a race to perfection. There hasn't been many better in the history of horse racing. Uh, this uh, this victory uh, for Golden Horn this weekend as well, is, is it made even all the more impressive that the top six arguably for this race, including uh, New Bay, uh, Trieve and uh, Free Eagle, all finished up in the top six as well. It wasn't like the competition was slipping and sliding this weekend either. Golden Horn ran against the best and beat the best. Um, I, I'd, I'd quite like to see it race against American Pharaoh. I know it's not going to happen. But you kind of wonder if actually it has raced against the best because three months ago American Pharaoh was you know the greatest flat <laughs> racing racehorse in in the world. So I don't know. What would, 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 would you think? Is it possible? Is it possible that that could ever be a showdown? No, I think I think it's more likely that Golden Horn goes into retirement because that was one of those races where it's like top this. It's like it's like a it's like a Man United player after they win the treble in '99. Like where do you go from there? From un unrivaled peaks, everything else just becomes normal after that. And to use another analogy, I mean, it would be like Floyd Mayweather putting his, 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 his record on the line against Manny Pacquiao in 2010. Do you know what I mean? It would be an actual battle where the, on 
one of them would, would ultimately lose a position of prominence uh, that it doesn't necessarily have to. Do you know what I mean? Well, Both it, of those horses too, in their own right will be considered great if they never meet. And that would probably suit everybody involved. Uh, as stud horse. Yeah, I'm sure no owner nor horse wants to give up their reputation that they've spent their whole career cultivating, if you will. Last question then, uh, Golden Horns year, uh, the incredible victories that it's had in the, the Derby, the Dante Stakes, the Coral Eclipse, the Irish Championship Stakes, and have now, of course, the Delac de Triomphe. Where does this rank in terms of all-time great seasons? For me, in terms of flat horses, it will always be Franco. Paul, just about out of time, and we're out of time here on the show as well. Raider, a massive thanks to you for joining us here on the 20-minute hit. Paul's away next week. It'll be me on my own. Until then, we'll catch you in seven days. Have a very good one.